And um, as a church, we've been working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we are concluding that study this week and next week. And we've been in it for two years. We started at Christmas 2021, and the past two years, walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus, from his birth in Bethlehem all the way to the past few weeks, we've seen his crucifixion in Jerusalem and his resurrection. And we find ourselves in the story in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he is now going to visit with some people who don't quite know who he is. And though, uh, if you have your Bibles, Luke 24, verse 13, if you don't have one, all the verses I'll be teaching through are listed for you inside that handout, so you feel free to follow along using that if that's easier for you. Verse 13 says, Behold, two of them that same day were walking to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding, they should not know him. Jesus somehow concealed himself and his identity from these guys. And he said unto them, verse 17, what manner of communications are these that you're having one to another as you walk and you're sad? And the one of them, which was named Cleopas, answered and said unto him, art thou not a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast not known the things which are come to pass these days? And he said unto them, what things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priest and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and even certain women also of our company made astonished when they went early today at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that Jesus was alive. Certain of them which were with them went to the sepulcher and found it even so as they had said, but they saw him not. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh into the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. They constrained him saying, stay with us, for it is towards the evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat down to eat with them, he took bread, blessed it, and brake, and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. The men then said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? We want to, as a church, Welcome you, if you are a guest tonight, to uh, a very special Sunday, obviously. It's not often, uh, if I should have done research and learned how often Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday, um, but we're excited to be able to welcome you into our services this evening. This is a huge celebration for us, who are the followers of Christ, and um, the reason why we celebrate today is because of a term called the incarnation, which is the moment where God put on human form. This is the day that we remember Jesus being sent down when God took on flesh. The incarnation Christmas is the turning point for all of history. Whether you're here today as a believer in Jesus or here out of maybe a sense of traditionalism or uh, something you do every year to come to church on Christmas Eve, whether or not you call yourself a believer, we have to admit that when Jesus was born, 
the single most influential, influential life of all time began. Any realistic and honest study results in us sitting back and pondering how it's possible that one person could have such an impact, that thousands of years later, all around the world, tonight and tomorrow, people will gather and celebrate his birth. 20 lifetimes have come and gone since that moment. And all of the armies, the navies, all of the governments and the parliaments put together have not impacted the history of humanity as much as this solitary life of Jesus of Nazareth. Millions of lives are still being impacted by Jesus today. So in our text this, mo- this evening, I'm going to be confused the entire time we're together, just so you know. I'm going to say more. I said good morning to, I think, a hundred of you as you walked in. But again, in our text, we find ourselves at the conclusion of the story. The birth of Jesus, if it's the baseball game, it's the top of the first. We find ourselves in the story of Jesus at the bottom of the ninth, okay? This is the very tail end of Jesus' story. At this point, Jesus has lived about 33 years on this earth. 30 of them, many of much uh, of which were spent in obscurity, uh, living the normal life of a blue-collar carpenter. The last final three years of his life, he spent ministering and teaching, journeying from northern Israel and Galilee down to southern Israel and Jerusalem. He's performed miracles. He's taught uh, sermons. He's brought sight to the blind. He's brought the dead back to life. He's caused the lame to walk and cast out the demons from those who are possessed. He's had an incredible life. And in verse number uh, 19, we see after he's been crucified, after he's resurrected from the dead, he appears to these two guys walking down the road on the road to Emmaus. We're introduced to one of them named Cleopas by name. The other one, we don't get his name recorded for us. But these two guys are walking and journeying from Jerusalem, which they probably came in for the Passover season, and they're on their way out, and they're walking, and they're sad. This is usually what happens about five minutes into any road trip we take with our family. I don't know if this is familiar with you. Uh, About five minutes in, somebody's sad, okay? Somebody's upset, somebody's angry. And Jesus was bold enough, gentlemen in the room, we probably have learned if you've been married for some length of time, you don't ask why that person is sad. You just know that they're sad, right? Because asking only sometimes results in realizing that you're the source of the sadness, right? Uh, But Jesus goes up and he says, why are you sad? Why are, you, why are you upset as you're walking down the road? And they answer him, don't you know what happened in Jerusalem? Don't you know what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? So who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth is kind of a nowhere town in Podunk, backwoods Israel. They would actually joke about Jesus saying what good can come out of the city of Nazareth. There was no, no important uh, region at all. That's where Mary and Joseph, Jesus' unwed teenage parents, lived. An angel appears to Mary Let's her know she's going to be with a child, which is obviously confusing and perplexing to her as she's never been with a man. But all of a sudden, this angel shows up and says, you're going to not only bear a child, but you're going to bear my child. You're going to bring the Messiah that's been long promised to come. And finally, we see at Christmas, he's, he's finally here. The entire Old Testament prophesies and talks about the day that this Savior would come. The Israelites had been waiting year after year after year. And at Christmas, he's finally here. He's finally shown up, and they're eagerly anticipating his arrival. There's a guy, one of my favorite Christmas stories is the story of a guy named Simeon in the New Testament, who's this, this, this religious teacher, this godly man, this man who lived uh, in his final kind of years of life as an elderly man, waiting for the day that the Savior would appear. Finally, Jesus shows up, and he holds him in his hands and says, finally, my eyes have seen my salvation. It's that anticipation 
sometimes around Christmas we'll call the Advent season. Advent is just a season of waiting. In our family, we have uh, some of those Advent calendars. If you guys have seen those, you can get them for like $2 at CVS or wherever they are. And they have each little door, you open them up, and um, if your parents love you, they've taken the time and the energy to put maybe handmade little cookies or something in all of those. We buy ours for $1.99 at CVS, okay? So uh, as you open up each every day, there's a new little candy and treat. And waiting is part of the fun, right? Well, the kids don't see it as fun, but you grow up to learn it as fun, right? 25 days, 24 days, 23 days, and each day getting a little treat, waiting for that day. That's a sign and signal pointing us back to the Old Testament Israelites as they waited and longed for the day their Messiah would come. And at Christmas, he's finally here. God has visited his people in the person of Jesus. So we're going to kind of separate this, this evening, whatever it is, afternoon, not 3 o'clock. We made it as vague as possible. I don't know if say evening, afternoon is what we'll say, okay? Um, three sections, okay, three good news statements. The first one, Jesus is finally here. He's finally here. At Christmas is the moment that we celebrate that God has visited humanity. God is visiting his people through the person of Jesus. And he reveals to us what God is like. That song we just sang calls Jesus Emmanuel. It's one of my favorite names of Jesus. It just means that God is with us. So whenever we read in the New Testament, we read that Jesus feeds the hungry. He's revealing to us what God is like. That God is a God who is compassionate towards the needs of people. When Jesus heals the sick or casts out a demon, it reveals that God is a powerful God who is tender towards the plights of others. It shows us that he has the power to deliver, to heal, to rescue. When Jesus forgives sinners, he reveals God to be a God who forgives those of us who are broken and welcomes sinners into his family as his children. He visits us through Jesus. When Jesus hangs on a cross, God is revealed to be the one who takes sin very seriously, but who will go to immeasurable heights to forgive that sin and bring sinners unto himself. When Jesus stands over Jerusalem and weeps over a city that he loves, he reveals God as a God who is desperate to have a relationship with us, with his people. Jesus reveals God to us, and he's finally here. In Christ, God has shown us what he is like. These gentlemen walking on the road, they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet. And then he describes him as mighty in deed and word. Mighty. You know, all of us in the room, we have different thoughts about who God is. Some of us might be here tonight, we think of Jesus as a historical figure or just a, a, maybe a religious teacher or a good example. Maybe some of us in the room would say he's a religious prophet. These guys said he's a prophet, but he was mighty in deed and in word. My hope tonight is whatever our thoughts are about God, Jesus is going to challenge them. Maybe some of us this afternoon have some thoughts about God that may not be exactly in line with what he's really like. Maybe you envision God to be harsh or cruel or indifferent or disinterested in you or cold or impotent. Jesus is going to challenge these thoughts. Not only challenge them, but my hope is that we can see through the word, correct them. If you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. God is a Jesus-like God. He's holier than we think, and he's kinder than we think. He's more powerful than we think, and he's more gracious than we think. This is why Jesus has come to be God's visitation to us, and he is finally here. You ever in a place where it's really, really dark? That we, uh, When I was growing up in Tennessee, we used to go to this uh, underwater waterfall. It was called Ruby Falls. It was near Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
and you'd go down there, and you'd take an elevator down, I don't know how many hundred feet, but you go down, and you get out, and everything's lit up, and it's cool, you go see the waterfall. There's one section where they kind of uh, try and scare everybody for a moment, show you how dark it is, right, and they turn all the lights off, and you can't even see the, your hand in front of your face. I mean, it is complete and utter darkness. It's disorienting, and no matter how tough you are, it's a little bit scary, right, just to be in that moment where you can't see a thing, totally dark. In that moment, no one's, no one's moving, nobody's running, right? In complete darkness, what happens? You're vulnerable, right? You don't want to stay in that situation for too long because you literally will lose your mind. There was an experiment that happened in 2007 where they put these individuals 48 hours in total darkness and isolation. One was a comedian in his 80s, and he said about uh, 14 hours in, he had hallucinations, tears, anxiety. He said, my identity and who I was kind of began to disintegrate. I didn't even realize my name at that point. I doubted who I was before I entered into that space. Darkness throughout the Bible is painted as a enslaving power. Over and over again in Jesus' birth story, we see that he came into a world that was classified as a dark world, completely absent of the presence of Jesus. It's an oppressive darkness. But that darkness isn't just physical, it's also spiritual. Not just darkness over us, there's darkness within us. That without a relationship with God, we are alienated from his presence, we're alienated from his love, we don't have his joy, we don't have that peace, that, that flourishing. It's caused our souls to be dark. Now here's what's happening in our world. We turn on the news and we wonder why such and so is saying whatever he's saying or what's going on or why this act is going and why this is the headline, it's darkness. For much of our history, there have been people found that have found identity in, in God or their faith or their religion. Now it's far more political than that. We find our identity and purpose in some kind of track of right or left or good or wrong, and that's never going to be enough for us. In darkness, we're trying to find worth and value and purpose outside of God, and darkness always leads to death. When Zechariah holds that baby Jesus and his heart explodes in worship, is because from a dark world, he has now seen the light of the gospel coming true. It is the light of Jesus. Matthew 4, 16, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them that sat in the region and shadow of death, light is springing up. I love Christmas lights. We try to have a tradition of driving around and looking at all the people that spend way more money on lights than we do. Uh, I have one strand, and I say words I shouldn't say when I put up the one strand. Okay, some of you guys are uh, unbelievable. I think the inflatables is kind of cheating. If you have inflatables, that's, that's cheating in my mind. You're getting the benefit without putting the work in, all right? But um, we'll drive around and look at the different lights. Light is very synonymous with Christmas, but ultimately it finds its foundation in the truth of the light of Jesus. That in a dark world, the light has shown up. John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. He is light. So when Jesus shows up teaching and working miracles, talking about goodness and mercy and compassion, what it looks like to have God as your father, to have a relationship with your creator, what is happening? Light is bursting on the scene. Light is shining into dark hearts. Light is shining into despair. God's presence is lighting up the world through the birth of Jesus. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark of a, of a leper. His life is completely falling apart. He's 
cast out from community. He can't be around his family, his relationships, his friends. He lives in complete loneliness, complete despair. His life is just kind of a slow walk towards what will eventually be his death. And he lives with a sense of alienation, of uncleanness. He can't go to church, to the temple. He can't worship. Jesus shows up and asks him, or he shows up to Jesus and says, if you're willing, would you make me clean, Jesus? You know what Jesus does? He reaches out and doesn't just say, you can be clean. He reaches out and touches him. He brings him out of the darkness of isolation, the darkness of, of, of loneliness, and into community, and into the temple. He came to restore lost people into the light. It's like Lazarus. You don't get much darker than Lazarus. He's been dead for three days. Wrapped up in a tomb when Jesus commands him to come forth. Life comes back into his body. The stone rolls away, and he walks right back into the light of day. Jesus came to bring light. He's the only one who could do that. And the only way that he could bring us out of the dark was to be plunged into the dark himself. The only way he could remove us from the darkness and bring us into the light was for him to leave the light and enter into darkness. There at the cross, Jesus, for a moment, the light of the world is snuffed out. Utter alienation from his father. The sky even turns to darkness. We saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus went into darkness for us so that you and I can leave the darkness and enter into the light. He's really here. But in our story, we don't just see that Jesus has come at Christmas. We see these gentlemen walking as they're in, you know, kind of despair and loneliness and sadness over this darkness, this light that it seems like has been snuffed out. This, this prophet who came to teach and to minister and to lead and to care and to, and to bring life into these people, it seems like the evil has won, the enemies have prospered, and Jesus is gone. Why are we sad? We're sad because Jesus is dead. Verse number 20, and how the chief priest and the rulers delivered Jesus to be condemned to death and have crucified him. We trusted that he was going to be the one that would have redeemed Israel. In other words, we thought he was the light. We thought he was the one. We thought he was going to be the one that was going to set us free. And all, these, all of this, today is the third day since these things were done. Then they say this. There were certain women of our group that went to the grave and were astonished when they showed up because the tomb had rolled away. We saw that last week, didn't we? The tomb rolled away. The stone rolled away from the front of the tomb, excuse me. But for the moment, they had a, a hope, maybe something's true. The disciples run to the gravesite as well, and they see the same exact thing. But these guys, they're not quite convinced yet. They're saying maybe Jesus has risen from the dead. Maybe there's still hope. And then Jesus says, verse 25, you fools, don't you remember that the prophets had spoken that Christ had to suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, don't you know what Jesus said was going to happen? Don't you know Jesus prophesied this would take place? And Jesus is walking down the road sharing with them the truth of his resurrection. Yes, Jesus came. Yes, Jesus died. But the good news of Christmas is tied directly to the good news of Easter, that Jesus this evening, afternoon, Four o'clock, okay, is really alive. He's really alive. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is real. That means that Jesus is God. That means that Jesus is good. Luke chapter 24, why do you walk and are sad? What things have brought this to pass? I love that verse number 19. What things? You know what that reminds me of? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What shall we say to these things? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. In an evil world, either God doesn't exist, God isn't good, or God isn't all-powerful. But there's another view that maybe I just don't know him. That Jesus at work in my life and God is at work unfolding a timeline of goodness in my time. The resurrection means God is good, God is real. The resurrection means that I matter. John 15, 13, Jesus told his disciples, greater love hath no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. This afternoon, you are not at the fate of the stars. You are not randomly evolved pieces of human flesh. You are not cells that just so luckily grouped together and formed a perfect organism that can survive on itself. You are the creation of God. You are loved and made by God. You are not at the fate of some kind of, of you know, secular, unconnected reality. You are the highly valued creation of Almighty God who loves you and came to earth at Christmas to give his life on a cross to spend all of history with you. So after this life, we spend the ages to come enjoying the riches of the goodness of God. Christmas means that Jesus is reality. Christmas means that I matter forever. Christmas means hope and heaven can belong to me. Luke 24, 21, we hoped that he would have redeemed Israel. John tells us Jesus has come to redeem Israel. He's come to redeem everyone. They misunderstood redemption. They thought redemption would mean that Jesus came to set them free politically. Jesus did not come to set Israel free politically. He set, came to be a true redeemer, to save us not just from political affiliations or from human control, but to save us from our sin, to offer to you and I the hope that we desperately need. Jesus didn't come just to give you a better life. He came to give you new life. He didn't just come to improve your circumstances. He came to give you a new heart and a life that is to come. Oswald Chambers says the resurrection of Jesus has given Jesus authority to impart the life that God wants to give to me. The only reason that I can offer any kind of help or encouragement to us this afternoon at Christmas Eve, the only reason that we have anything to celebrate is that the baby that was born in a manger that died on a cross three days later resurrected and there is an empty tomb. George Herbert says death used to be an executioner. For the resurrection of Christ makes him nothing but a gardener. When death tries to bury you, he's really planting you, and you're to come up better than you were before. Resurrection means Jesus comes to us personally. To be a Christian is not just to follow the rules of God. It's not just follow some kind of restrictions or guidelines. It is an opportunity for you to come to know Jesus Christ, the babe that was born in that manger, to know him personally. Tonight, could you, could you describe your relationship with Jesus as personal? Personal. That you know him and he knows you. That you spend time with him and he spends time with you. That you have a personal relationship with Jesus. That is what Christmas is about. It is not some sentimentality. It is not some opportunity for us to eat better food than we ate every other day of the year. It's not just a chance for us to gather with family and friends. As good and as positive as all of these ventures are, Jesus came so that you can know him and so you can know your creator. If I could give you in five minutes what well, I would hope you would know about Jesus. That if I had five minutes with you here or at a coffee shop or whatever else, this, this is five minutes of what you need to know about Jesus. 
He loves like you would want God to love. He forgives like we desperately want God to forgive. He judges as we would want our God to judge. He is gracious in a way that we don't understand. He asks no effort from your salvation. He asks no payment for your sin. He forces no worship. He coerces no behavior. He knows you as no one else has ever known you. He knows what you hide from everybody else. He loves you in spite of everything you hide from everybody else. He likes you, not just loves you. And all those of us with siblings know those, those aren't the same thing, right? He considers you worth his sacrifice. He understands your emotions. He understands your longings. He understands your loneliness. The Bible says he feels your pains, your hurts. He can resolve your greatest fears. He can redeem the grandest failures of your history. He can restore your losses, rebuild your regrets. He can heal your ugliest faults. He can renew your messiest moments. He can transform your roughest qualities. He can fulfill you. He can satisfy your, your longings, your desires, and he can seed your biggest dreams and desires. In, in essence, he can change the way you wish so that you can change. Because Jesus is alive, you can be freed from sin's power, sin's penalty. Because of Christmas and Easter, you can be given eternal life in heaven and a new nature now. You can be redeemed in God's family as his child. You can put the past behind you. You can know Jesus. You can have the life that he intended you to live. You can face tomorrow with purpose and presence and, and anticipation. You can relate to God with a feeling of forgiveness. You can face forever with confidence and promise. And it's all yours. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the moment you have that personal relationship with him, the Easter story, the Christmas story becomes personal when we believe and trust in him. He's finally here. This afternoon, he's really alive. And then thirdly, all of life is about him. All of life is about him. Verse 27, Jesus, this would have been my, if I can ever like, transport, and maybe I hope in heaven there's a DVR, I really do, where we can rewind and see different things that happen in history. I would love to sit through the lecture that Jesus taught to these guys in the Emmaus Road. He's walking, verse 27, he says, beginning at Moses, which is the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He starts at the law, works all the way through the prophets. What does he do? He expounded unto them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he goes from Genesis to Exodus, Leviticus, explaining all of who Jesus really is, while they don't even know that Jesus is the one they're talking to. Jesus appears to these disciples on the road to Emmaus and begins to explain to them from Moses and the prophet, prophets how every story in the Bible had always been about him. He was trying to give them confidence that he really was who he told them he was. You know, the resurrection itself is should be enough proof for us, but evidently Jesus believed it would be even more convincing to these followers of Jesus to show them that every single page of a book, by the way, the Bible's written by 30 different authors over the space of about 1,500 years, and it all tells one story, and it's all the story of Jesus, and it all coincides and connects with one another. We don't exactly know what he said that day, but I imagine it would have sounded something like this, that in Genesis, Jesus explains he was the word of God. 
creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, Jesus was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of our hearts so that you could escape the punishment of slavery. In Leviticus, Jesus was the temple, the holy place where we meet with God. In Numbers, he was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus was the prophet coming who was greater than Moses. In Joshua, Jesus was the conquering hero leading you into the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken savior rising up to rescue you from your brokenness. In Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he was the pure-hearted, true shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants in your place. In Kings, he was the only righteous ruler. In Chronicles, he was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, he was the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he's the advocate, risking his life to restore us. In Job, he was the living redeemer. In Psalms, he was the one who hears our cries. In Proverbs, Jesus is wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, he's the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, he is your bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, he's the spirit that writes God's laws on your hearts. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the river of life springing up, healing to the nations. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he's the ever-faithful husband pursuing us, his unfaithful bride. In Joel, he's the restorer of all that has been eaten. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, he's the prophet cast into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, he's the everlasting ruler brought to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he's the reason to rejoice when our fields and barns are empty. In Zephaniah, he's the great reformer. In Haggai, he's the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he's the pierced son whom every eye on earth will behold and worship. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. He was promised, and he came. But he didn't just came, come. He, he died, he came back to life. And in Acts, he's the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he's the justifier. Corinthians, he's the spirit at work in the church. In Galatians, he's the righteousness that's imputed only through faith. In Ephesians, he's our armor. In Philippians, he's the God who meets our needs. In Colossians, he's the firstborn of every creation. In Thessalonians, he's descending from heaven with a shout, coming to meet us one day together in the clouds. In Timothy, he's the one mediator that exists between God and man. In Titus, he's our faithful pastor and shepherd. In Philemon, he's our redeemer. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, he's the life at work in our faith. In Peter, he's our cornerstone. In John, he's our advocate, pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our Savior. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, that baby who was born. It's all about him. It's only ever been about him, and it only will always be about him. He's the center of all of it. And the entire story of the Gospel of Luke is really the entire story of the entire scriptures. When Simeon holds the baby Jesus, when Peter brings his nets full of fish into the boats, when, when the Roman soldiers watch as Jesus died and the earth grew dark. When Thomas sets his eyes upon the risen Christ and touches his wounds. He came to reveal his glory. And we've seen it. 
It's no wonder on Christmas the angels sing glory to God in the highest. What, what else can you say but give God glory? And my hope tonight is that the light of the incarnation can fill our minds and we feel the heat of the goodness of the gospel that begins to burn in our hearts like it did with those men that walked with Jesus after his resurrection. Would you bow with me for a prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for